let's first, let's pray. Father, we, we thank you for your word and that it is effectual, that it creates the reality of what it speaks of. Lord, we pray that you would create that reality in our hearts and our lives this morning. We pray that you would create humility in our lives. You would create a people for yourself that worship Christ and him alone, that have no place for idols in their lives, that have no place for other gods that are really no gods at all. Create for yourself a humble people who bow before you and trust you and follow you. Lord, we pray for those among us who are struggling. Lord, we pray for Chloe as she, um, her body is deteriorating. Lord, give her strength and, li- and, and, and life in you. We pray that you heal her and bring her back to us. But Lord, we also thank you for the fact that she knows, as we sang about that knowing you is better than anything else, and that knowing you will transcend death. Thank you for that great hope. Help her to hold on to that so tightly. Lord, as many of us may not be feeling our best either, as we struggle through work and life, and struggle to be patient with our children, and and struggle to concentrate, and maybe even here this morning, struggle, struggle to pay attention to your word. Lord, give us the ability to do that. Help us to Uh, hold tightly to your word and have the alertness to understand it. Lord, we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Now, if you read the news this week, I think you'll, you'll come to the conclusion that evil really does run rapid in the world today, right? ISIS boasts of their power and abilities, beheading a journalist, putting it out there for the world to see. Last week, London was on a high terrorist alert. There's ethnic cleansing in northern Iraq. There's murder, torture, and rape. There's violence in Afghanistan. There's a war in Ukraine. There's unrest in Ferguson. American missionaries are sentenced to hard labor in North Korea for leaving a Bible. Evil runs rapid in our world today. And often when you kind of investigate this evil, what you find is at the center of it is is an arrogant leader boasting of their own power. Look at me, what I can do, and the evil that I can inflict on other people. It's sad. A few things to remember as Christians. One, we should expect there to be evil in the world today. Jesus said there will be wars and rumors of war. I studied history in college, and it's actually pathetic how much history I remember, but I do remember one thing, at least. There's no golden age There's no time in history where everything just seems to be perfect and good that we would want to go back to. It's all a mess. And that seems to be exactly what the Bible predicts and expects to happen. Second, people are prideful. That goes all the way back to the garden when Eve took the fruit because she wanted to be like God, knowing good and evil. She wanted power. She didn't want to submit to God. She wanted to be God. And we should expect people to act like that today. But the third thing we have to remember about the evil in the world is that God laughs at it. Really? Doesn't he also weep? Oh, yes. He is moved with pity. He he has compassion on those who suffer. See, theologically, we make a distinction between evil endured and evil committed. God weeps at the evil endured, at the suffering of people. But God also laughs at the evildoers. Let me read you 
Psalm 2. The kings of the earth set themselves together. The rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed. And friends, that's what we see in the world today. But notice what it says next. But he who sits in heaven laughs. Or Psalm 37. The Lord laughs at the wicked, for He sees His end is coming. God laughs at evildoers. He mocks them. And that exposes them for what they really are. At our house, our two-year-old is beginning to understand the power of language. And she wants to, with her language, control the people around her. She'll say to her older sibling, you sit right there. And then if he does, because he's curious what happened, she gives him the look like, okay, I'll let you live. (laughs) And it's really funny because she thinks she rules her world And yet it is so obvious that she doesn't. We can just pick her up and move her wherever we want her. There's a huge gap between the power that she thinks she has and the power she really has. Or to put it another way, her exalting herself is funny because it has no basis in reality at all. It makes us laugh. Well, friends, for that same reason, God laughs at ISIS. God laughs at Al-Qaeda. God laughs at the cruel dictators who do evil. God laughs at the police officers who think they're above the law, and God laughs at the arrogant young people who think there is no law. God laughs at them because of the great disparity between the power they think they have and the power they actually have. Their their prideful rebellion has no basis in reality. And now, don't get me wrong, God is still grieved at the destruction these people commit. God doesn't laugh at rape and pillage. No, that would make God evil, and he isn't. He feels pity. Please understand that. But that's for another sermon. This sermon is about how God laughs at the people who commit the evil because they are really no more threatening than a two-year-old tantrum. We're going to look at Judges chapter 3, verses 12 through 30. And here we are going to see God laughing at evildoers. And now there's, there's a lot of meaning in this passage. As I read the passage, I'm going to do something a little bit different. I'm not going to read straight through. I'm going to try to give you a little bit of commentary as to what's happening. There's, there's meaning behind these Hebrew names that you won't get upon first reading in English. So, he, uh, Judges chapter 3, verse 12. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel. Because they had done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And he gathered to himself the Ammonites and the Amalekites and went and defeated Israel. And then took possession of the city of Palms. That's the city of Jericho, by the way. And the people of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, 18 years. Now what happens here? Well, Israel is doing evil in the sight of the Lord. And then God judged them by raising up the king of Moab named Eglon. Now, you have to realize that Eglon's name means calf, like a fatted calf. Remember that. Eglon has been ruling Israel for 18 years. They took Jericho. That would be heartbreaking to Israel. And and it says they served the king for 18 years. And that means that they brought him tribute, probably, almost certainly, food. It's like an extremely high tax. He's, He's... taking the life out of the people. It's, it's this forced you know, food stealing, basically. And then verse 15. The people of Israel cried out to the Lord, 
And the Lord raised up for them a deliverer, Ehud, the son of Gera, the Benjamite, a left-handed man. God raises up a deliverer from the tribe of Benjamin. The word Benjamin means son of the right hand, which would indicate that he's a warrior, because a warrior would fight with his right hand. But can, can Ehud wield a sword with his right hand? No. He's left-handed. And actually, the word for left-handed here indicates that there's something wrong with his right hand. He has a, a withered, broken hand. Maybe it's a physical deformity. Uh, maybe he was injured in battle. Either way, uh, he, he looks like a crippled person. He, he's not able to fight with his right hand. Now, what's going to happen? Let's continue. Verse 15 continues. The people of Israel sent tribute by him to Eglon, the king of Moab. And Ehud... Now, Eglon and Ehud, their names could sound familiar. Eglon is the king, the wicked king. Ehud is the judge. I'm going to try to say king Eglon and judge Ehud as much as possible so we can keep them separate. But try to do that in your mind. Ehud made for himself a sword with two edges, a cubit in length, and bound it on his right thigh under his clothes. And he presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now, Eglon was a very fat man. And when Ehud had finished presenting the tribute, he sent away the people who carried the tribute. But he himself turned back at the idols near Gilgal, and he said, I have a secret message for you, O king. And he, that's the king, commanded silence. And all his attendants went out from his presence. And Ehud came to him as he was sitting alone in his cool roof chamber. And Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. And he, that's the king, arose from his seat And Ehud reached with his left hand, took the sword from his right thigh, and thrust it into his belly. And the hilt also went in after the blade, and the fat closed over the blade, for he did not pull his sword out of his belly, and the dung came out. Then Ehud went out on the porch, or then Ehud went out into the porch, and closed the doors of the roof chamber behind him, and locked them. Wow, what a story. Anyone shocked that's in the Bible? The Bible doesn't shy away from the harsh realities of life. The point of this passage is really to expose sin for what it is. Well, let's read the rest. When he had gone, the servants came, and when they saw that the doors of the roof chamber were locked, they thought, surely he is relieving himself in the closet of the cool chamber. So they waited till they were embarrassed. But when he still did not open the door of the roof chamber, they took the key and opened it, and there lay their Lord dead on the floor. Ehud escaped while they delayed, and he passed by beyond the idols and escaped to Syrah. When he arrived, he sounded the trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim. Then the people of Israel went down with him from the hill country, and he was their leader. And he said to them, follow after me, for the Lord has given your enemies, the Moabites, into your hands. So they went down after him and seized the fords of the Jordan against the Moabites and did not allow anyone to pass over. And they killed at that time about 10,000 of the Moabites, all strong, able-bodied men. Not a man escaped. So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel, and the land had rest for 80 years. Wow. Interesting story, isn't it? In the time remaining, I want to look at three things. The, the foolishness of pride, the futility of idols, and an unlikely hero. First, the foolishness of pride. Now, I tried to give you some commentary on this passage as we went through. Um, 
we saw that, he, that Eglon, the king Elon, is basically, you have to realize, he is getting fat off of the people. It's safe to assume that the tribute is food that, that, the, that is being brought to the king. That's what Israel is doing there. They're taking their harvest that they desperately need to feed themselves and giving a large portion of it to the king. And the king is just sitting there on his throne, eating away at the food that Israel is bringing to him. So he's getting fat at the expense of the people. And I think we see that in the text. Verse 17 mentions the tribune right next to where it mentions that he's a fat man. I think there's a relationship between the two. I think it's safe to assume that. And then as the story continues, we learn that it is the very size of the king that makes him open to such a surprise attack. Had he been fit, he would have been able to have gotten away or at least have done something. I mean, the, the judge... Uh, Eglon only has a very small window to pull this off. He's got to do it so the king doesn't yell or anything, or then he's going to be caught. Oh, he uses the guy's, the guy's uh, weight and the fact that he can't move to pull off the assassination attempt and get away. I talked about this passage with one person this week, and he read over the passage, and he said that when he looks at King Eglon, he thinks of Jabba the Hutt, you know, a guy who's really big. And he couldn't defend himself either, and that was his downfall. Compare the difference between how King Eglon thinks of himself and how God thinks of the king. So King Eglon thinks of himself as fat and happy, and he thinks that the food he stuffs in his mouth, stolen from the Israelites, is confirmation of his power over them. But God thinks of him as a fatted calf. And every time he puts food in his mouth, God sees him getting ready for the slaughter. See the irony of that? It's his very pride, his very desire to exert himself over others that prepares him for his downfall. And there's another way that his pride prepares him for the downfall, and that's how eager he is to hear a message from the Lord. Judge Ehud says, I have a secret message from the Lord for you, O king. And then the king commands silence, and he gets everybody out of the way. But see, if King Eglon had a more realistic understanding of his spiritual condition, he would not have been so eager to hear this message from the Lord. Think about it. The king is stealing from God's people. He's taken over Jericho. He's trespassing on the land that God had given them. Why would he assume that this people's God would say anything that he'd want to hear? Oh, he'd have no reason to assume that. He should have assumed that because he's rebelling against God, any message that the Lord would have for him would be judgment. You can't persecute God's people and expect God to speak well to you. But his pride blinded him to his evil. And there's also an ironic double meaning when Judge Ehud says, I have a secret message from the Lord for you. You see, the Hebrew word for message can mean message, as in a a verbal message, which is how the king took it. But that same word can also mean a thing, an object. I have a secret thing from the Lord for you. It's secret, all right. It's concealed on his right thigh. And he's going to give it to him. He's really going to give it to him straight into his gut. And when the servants finally get there and they get the nerve to open the door, they find the king in his private bathroom. And verse 25 says, and there lay their Lord dead on the floor. Look at that. Their Lord. What kind of Lord is this? A Lord that's dead, sitting in his own excrement on the floor of his bathroom. This is God unmasking evil for what it really is in the end. 
In the end, this king who forced Israel to serve them and took their land and ate their food is now a fat guy lying in his own poop. And the irony of the story is that it is his own pride that got him there. He thinks he's at the pinnacle of his own greatness, and he interprets everything around him as a confirmation of his own greatness. And it is that illusion of his greatness that brings him down. The Bible says, he who thinks he stands, take heed lest he fall. King Elon falls because he tries to stand on his own greatness, and that is no solid foundation on which to build anything at all. And that's why the Bible says God laughs at evildoers because he sees their end is coming. Now, friends, how do we make this personal? Well, let me encourage you. We should realize that our most, the, the most dangerous thing in our lives is really our own pride. You see, I think too often we're way, we're, we're way too concerned about other people's pride. We're really bothered by the pride of the terrorists, and we should be to some extent. But we shouldn't let that dominate our lives. Sometimes we can't stand people at work or in our families who just seem so arrogant. And yet we're perfectly fine with the own pride in our, in our own hearts. If we have a God in heaven who laughs at the proud because he sees their day coming, we should not worry so much about the pride in the people out there as we should worry about the pride in here, in our own hearts. Jesus said, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both the soul and the body in hell. God will oppose the proud. How do we get rid of our pride? Hold that thought for a minute. We want to see the second thing in here, and that is the futility of idols. Now, where do you see idols in this passage, you might wonder? I don't see them very prominent. Well, they're not. They're kind of hidden in here. Notice twice in this passage, idols are mentioned. Verse 19, Ehud goes back to assassinate the king after he gets to the idols. That was like the signal. Okay, we get to the idols, we return, and I go and assassinate the king. And then verse 26 says that he passed by the idols and escaped. Why are the idols mentioned in the story? There's no obvious need to mention them in terms of the unfolding of the plot. But I was talking with a friend of mine who actually pointed this out to me. He's a pastor who lives right up in Baltimore. He preached on this passage last week. And he pointed out something interesting to me. He said, he think, think the idols are there to show that they don't protect the king at all. It seems like the king put these idols on whatever path one would have to travel in order to get to the king. They're, they're like on the walkway up to the king's chamber. And the idols served sort of like protection for the king and sort of like a, a metal detector, if you were. No one's going to harm the king because they've got to walk right past the idols. I, for one, don't complain about security in the airport. I think it's just fine if you want to search me well because I know that then you're searching the other people well and I really don't want to get on a plane with somebody who has a gun. The metal detectors give me a sense of security, right? Probably they give you the same thing. Well, those idols probably gave King Eglon a sense of security as well, but see, it was a false sense of security because they didn't do anything. Three times, Ehu passed by the idols. One time when he went in to see the king with the company. Another time when he turned around at the idols. And then a third time when he escaped past the idols. Did the idols detect the hidden dagger on his right thigh? Did the idols overhear anything about the secret plot when Ehud uh, went back to the king after he passed the idols with the company? Or did the idols stop Ehud after he assassinated the king and was making an escape? No. 
because they're not real. They don't exist. In this passage, God is making fun of the idols. And you know why he does that? To show the Israel how foolish they have been for leaving the one true God for these things that don't actually exist. We read over and over again in the book that that people would worship the Baals and the Astroths. And God is saying, these things have no power. You're leaving me for this? Seriously? It's like a man who has his wife leave him, but she really isn't leaving him for another man. She's leaving him for a cardboard cutout. What's that going to do? That's what it's like when we worship things that aren't God. They're not really God. They can't save us. Idols have no power except they can destroy the lives of those who trust in them. You see, when you go to God for something that only God can provide and you rely on that thing other than God, you ruin yourself. Because you cut yourself off from your relationship with God at the very point in which you need something from Him. And it is that illusion of safety with the idols that causes us not to watch out when we should. Well, friends, what are some idols that you might trust in? Now, let me mention just three. And we talked last week, by the way, about how even though we don't serve little statues, probably, we are still guilty of idolatry when we worship something other than God. So so what is it that we're likely to worship? Well, let me mention three things. First, our morality. We're prone to worship our morality. I talked to one person one time, and he said, Pastor, I know that I'm going to heaven because I've done enough good works that God is going to accept me. A person made an idol out of his good works. He's trusting in them to save him, and he thinks he's safe when he's really in desperate danger. Another idol is the idol of acceptance. If only I can get this person to notice me. If only this guy or girl would love me. If I have children who will take care of me when I'm old. If only I could be part of the in-crowd. And it's amazing what we'll do when we want so much to be accepted by others. Their opinion of us defines us. And it defines right and wrong. And we'll do anything to get them to notice us. And there's also the idol of success. If I can just be successful at something, then I can go to my grave knowing I've accomplished something. I haven't wasted the food that I've eaten or the air that I've breathed. I've done something good. I've got to turn this company around, someone might say. I've got to get this promotion. I need to finish this degree. I've got to be the very best employee. I've got to be successful, we might think. Now, this passage that we read makes the king's idols look absolutely ridiculous because they are. But do you think he felt that they were ridiculous to him at the time? Probably not. See, no idol feels ridiculous at the time we're actually trusting it. But that's because we're deceived. John Calvin put it this way. He said, our hearts are idol factories. They're constantly churning out these idols. Oh, trust in this. Oh, trust in this. Oh, trust in that. And you see... Apart from God working in our lives, apart from a Savior outside of us, the best we can do is trade one idol for another. How do we get rid of our idols? Well, it takes us to the third thing, and that is the unlikely hero. And we will see how, with what this unlikely hero points to, that's the solution for our pride and our idolatry. God raises up Judge Ehud. And you have to understand 
he doesn't look like you'd expect a hero to look like. He's a Benjamite, which means you would expect a warrior. But does he look like a warrior? No. He looks like a cripple. But he's only cloaked in weakness because inside there is real strength. And it is in that weakness that his strength lies. Because only through his apparent weakness can he get close enough to the king and be armed in such a way that nobody will know. Most warriors, because they're, they're right-handed, will wear their swords on their left side. And everybody's going to think to check there. But no, he slips past them. His hidden strength, cloaked in weakness, allows him to go into the very presence of the king. And that allowed him to, to have victory over the king. And that gave the people peace for 80 years. God brought Israel's salvation through the weakness of this judge. There's a verse in the New Testament that I think gives a great commentary on this passage. That's 1 Corinthians 2, 27, which says, God uses what is weak in the world to shame the wise. Ehud is weak. There's no question about that. And King Eglon is stabbed to death and lying dead on his own bathroom floor by the very people who had enslaved him. If that's not shame, I don't know what is. This is what God does throughout the Bible. God uses old Moses to stand before Pharaoh and ask for the people to go. And then Pharaoh boasts of his own power and ability. But then Pharaoh is brought down and the people escape. God uses young David to stand before Goliath. And Goliath proudly boasts over what he's going to do to David. But in the end, David, or Goliath rather, loses his head and David leads the people to victory. God uses Esther, who because she was a woman had very little status in that culture. Yet she exposes the evil plot of the king's advisors and saves her people from destruction. And the powerful advisor ends up perishing on the very gallows that he prepared for Esther's family. God uses the weak in the world to shame the strong. And see, these are just shadows of the greatest act of God using what is weak to shame the strong. Because God sent his son in weakness. To our human eyes, his son looked not powerful, He looked weak and vulnerable. And he doesn't just risk death like Moses and David and Esther and Ehud. He actually dies. The Bible says he is crucified in weakness. He dies to take upon himself the sin of all those who would trust in him. See, God treats Christ as if he were the proud idolater that we are. Christ is brought down. Christ is shamed. He experiences the punishment for leaving God and serving idols. And it is that very weakness and and, uh, frailty that allows him to take the punishment that we deserve. See, if Christ was simply God, if it simply been God as the second person of the Trinity coming down, not clothed in human flesh, he would not have been able to die for the sins of all those who had trusted him. He had to be a human to bear human punishment. So Christ takes on our frailty. He takes on our human nature. And that allows him to die on the cross for sin, uh, securing the greatest victory over sin and death. And because of his victory, the Bible says it was impossible for death to keep him. So God raised him from the grave. Yes, he is crucified in weakness, but the Bible says he is raised in glory. And what is this glory? Well, let me read you from Revelation chapter 19. We see a picture of his glory. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on the horse is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. The eyes, his eyes are like a flame of fire, 
And on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepresses of fury of the wrath of God the Almighty, on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. That's a picture of Jesus. And you see, Jesus is the real and true Ehud. He accomplishes his mission through weakness, but then he goes forth to conquer. And he will return one day and execute perfect judgment. All his enemies will be subdued. Friends, let me suggest to you that only a vision of this Christ will be able to defeat the idols and the pride in your life. When we see Christ for who he is in his power and glory, it should just cause us to flee from ever thinking that we could have put ourselves upon the throne of our lives. We don't deserve to be there. We're not the God of this world. And when we see Christ for who he is, it causes us to flee that throne that we've built up for ourselves and worship him. How could we ever want to put ourselves upon the throne of our lives when we realize that this same one who comes as the conquering king is also the one who died on the cross for us? The righteous judge with the flaming sword is also the lamb who humbly died in our place. See, Jesus is not like King Eglon, who gets fat off of his people. Jesus is the king who gives himself for his people. He's not a king who uses his power and authority to obtain things for himself at the expense of others. Rather, he uses his power and authority to wield it to do good to others, to do good to those who are his. How could we ever think that we could get away with rivaling him for his authority and glory? And when we understand his love, how could we ever want to? You see, the way to get rid of your pride is not to go around thinking, I need to be less prideful, I need to be less prideful. No, that will only make us, if we are successful, proud of our humility. And then we're even worse. No, the way to get us off of our proud high horse is to see the one who's on the white horse, who belongs there, and then we will bow down to him. The vision of Christ also gets rid of our idols. If we don't see Christ on the throne, then this world is a very scary place. And in order to feel safe, what we do is we start constructing idols in our lives. If I get this, I'll be okay. If I get this, I'll be okay. We think these idols will give us power and security to keep us happy and safe. But when we see Christ on the throne, we don't think we need those idols anymore. Because we know his power and his glory and we worship him. The only way to get rid of our idols is to look to Christ. There's a a movie that I think illustrates this, about the life of Martin Luther, the Protestant reformer. He learns about the gospel by studying the book of Romans, and he brings life back to the church. And and Martin Luther uh, goes to the city of Wittenberg and teaches at the university of there. And, And kind of the governor over that city is a man named Frederick the Wise. And Kind of something interesting about him is that he is known for his extensive relic collection. Relics were basically idols. They were what he trusted in. 
At the beginning of the movie, we see him sitting there playing with his little idols because he loves them. They're what keep him safe and protected. But then he sits under Luther's teaching of the gospel. And for the first time in his life, he reads a Bible that Luther actually translated into German and then dedicates to him. And in the final scene of the movie, or one of the final scenes in the movie, you see Prince, um, or Frederick the Wise in the same room he was in with all the, the idols, but this time the shelves are all clear. And I think he's there reading his Bible. And he knows that the fact that he hasn't handed over Luther to the established church could cost him his life. But that doesn't bother him. Because now he knows a greater source of protection. He knows that it's better to spend his life for the sake of Christ than to have all the power and authority in the world. Friends, do you know that? And is your life marked by a sober recognition that at the end of the day, your biggest problem is not anything outside, but rather inside your own sin that makes you liable to the judgment and wrath of God? But in God's great love, he, he came cloaked in humility and takes our place. And then this same Christ turns out to be the most powerful, glorious king. And the only reason that you are among those who he fights for rather than he fights against is his mercy and his kindness towards you. Because you do not deserve that. Friends, only that will destroy the inbred desire to exalt ourselves and put things up other than God that we worship. Let's pray. Father, we, we thank you for Christ. And we pray that you would work in our hearts deep humility and love for Christ. That Christ to us would be both the conquering king who has a sharp sword who will execute judgment. And therefore, we trust him as our source of protection and safety. And Christ is also the lamb who dies on the cross that opens the door that we might come to you and have that protection and safety because on our own, we deserve your wrath. Lord, help us to see Christ for who he is and fall on our knees and worship him. We pray this in Christ's name.